This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. This is an odd message. Uh, it's not really a message, but it is. Uh, it's... I called, I have to name everything, so I named this a heart-to-heart. Let's talk about where we're headed and how we can get there. It's a very significant time for me, what we're walking through, and I think it's a very sig- significant time for all of us, and I don't know how much you have sensed that as we're walking through. This is difficult territory, and we are addressing topics that most churches wisely, it's human wisdom, but wisely steer away from lest it divide the body unnecessarily. I mean, come on, this isn't the central issue. Let's, let's unite on Jesus and him crucified and let's call it good. And so, but when we start dealing with the functionality of the body, things can get a little dicey because there's a lot of differing opinions of how that should be understood And so when you have a body like ours, which is very unusual because we are not denominationally driven. In other words, you didn't choose this church because we were Baptist. You didn't choose this church because we were charismatic or Pentecostal. What led you here likely was the fact that we have a very high opinion of the word of God in text, the word of God in person, and the word of God in action, which is the cross. We believe also that that word of God is meant to be fleshed out in us as believers. And so that combination of key central salient points is one of the things that unites us, but it's not denominational in its orientation. Denominations are made up basically of the book of 1 Corinthians. The same thing that denominationalized the church at Corinth is the same exact things that denominationalize us. And this is one of the key things, spiritual gifts. How you handle this, if you even expect the Holy Spirit to be working today, or you don't, because that's the perfect has come, now this has all ceased, we no longer even need to deal with this, that's a division in the church. Or how you do it, because there's more uh, exotic ways of experiencing spiritual gifts than others. And some of you have already recognized, maybe, it's like, Eric's talking about spiritual gifts, but it's not very exotic. I'm not an exotic character. The guy that just happens to be the one talking about this is not necessarily inclined towards exotic things in the church of Jesus Christ. However, here's what I could say. I humbly want to approach what the scriptures say, bend my knee and say, God, if you want to be more exotic, here's your vessel. But I don't need exotic. I don't. I don't need dead people to be raised to believe the word of God. I don't need to see fishes and loaves multiplied before my eyes into feeding 5,000 people for me to say, this is God. This is his word. I believe it. I don't need that. And so as a result, it always bothers me when people are like craving him because like, hey, can't we just take God at his word? At the same time, God throughout history has leveraged demonstration of power to convince people that maybe otherwise wouldn't be convinced. 
And I'm okay with that. I just want you to know that I'm not against God moving in powerful ways. It's just that the guy talking doesn't crave it. So as a result, I have a tendency to diminish something that God may at times want to increase in our midst. And I don't want to do that. I want to be in stride with what God wants to do, not with what what Eric feels like. And so that's the tensions that we face in this. And I'm going to walk through something. I think you guys will enjoy this little exercise. The lively responses to last week's message. It was really funny. I got a lot of feedback after last week's message. And uh, so diverse was this feedback. In fact, I could have almost anticipated this if you'd asked me, Eric, what kind of response are you going to get after this? I could have said, well, it'd probably be mixed. Because there's two different sides to this, two different lenses that we could easily appropriate this through. And some of you think that the rest of this body is just like you. And you fail to realize that the guy talking actually knows this body really well. Because I get feedback from all sectors all the time. I have people that are in consternation over the lack of talking about this. And I have people that are in consternation because we talk about it too much. Well, which one's right? I mean, I feel like I'm not even talking about it hardly at all. But these people are concerned with how much I'm talking about it. Okay, so the point being, there are sensitivity points here. And my desire is to walk together on this. To be of one heart, one spirit, one mind, one purpose. That's easier said than done. That's what Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians. So he says, you need to be of one mind. You need to be united on this. How are we supposed to be united? Paul, don't you realize that we have denominations, that we have heritage, that we have biases? Doesn't he get this? How are we supposed to walk through these things? Well, it's not with our human ability. It's the Holy Spirit that desires to teach each one of us how to work together in and through these things. So here, I'll give you a little uh, response from last week. As a pastoral team, we received some concern from some in our body over the perceived lack of biblical support for the definitions of prophecy given in last week's message. Those of you present know that I had planned to go through the entirety of 1 Corinthians 14 last week line by line, but I decided when I arrived at that point to suddenly skip over reading through it. This was a concern of several people last Sunday. Here's what I want you to know. I get that. I actually appreciate that concern. I like that. I don't mind hearing that. So if that was you, I want you to know I'm right there with you. I'm going to say a hearty amen. You know the reason that I skipped it last week isn't because I didn't want to go through it. I love long messages. 1 Corinthians 14 is a lot of reading. I enjoy that. The reason was, is I felt at that exact juncture that I wanted to make space to actually practice what we were talking about. But to do that, I had to not read through 1 Corinthians 14. But here's what I want you to know. I agree with you. I love the basis. Here's here's how I approach every sermon. I approach it as an attorney. So I have my argument, and then I have my basis of argument, and how I support that. In other words, my support is scripture. So I'll usually have three different arguments to support my main argument, and that's how a legal argument is put together. So that's how I do it, which is why my messages usually arrive at around one hour and 15 minutes. It's about how long it takes to do it thoroughly. However, most churches don't do that. And so I'm in the process of trying to learn how to in a sense, move from being a Bible college in how we run here, because that's what we started as. We started as a Bible college with people sort of listening in on Sunday mornings, to being a a church 
that is a little more digestible for people that are coming off the street. In other words, they're not used to this environment of heavy-duty steak dinners every service. So to do that, I feel like it's a compromise for me. It's like, well, that means I can't give as much scriptural backing. You may not be thinking that, but that's what I think. So if someone's concerned about scriptural backing, amen. I'm right there with you, which is one of the tensions I face in this. In other words, to make a sermon more tight so we have more time for family dynamic and interaction, that means I have to give something with a little less backing. You follow me? These are tensions that I face, and I don't mind that. So thank you. We also receive concern about my continual emphasis on how uncomfortable the subject is for me personally. One saint, that's one of you, mentioned, if Pastor Eric continues to talk about how uncomfortable it is, I fear it's going to start making him look bad. So every Sunday when we start, I have to start with the premise that you may not have been here beforehand. And there's part of me psychologically that wants everyone in here to know the simple fact that this is hard territory. And so I get that. I just want you to know. However, on the, on, the ba- on the second, I fear it's going to start making him look bad. I entered into an agreement with God many years ago that I'm willing to look bad. So just so you know, you don't need to worry about that for me. I'm already looked bad. The moment I started preaching, I started looking bad. The moment I started saying, it's only Jesus, I looked bad. But I appreciate your sensitivity on that. And I'm going to try and be sensitive to the fact that not talking about how uncomfortable this topic is for me over and over again. Because I want to be sensitive. Oh, and another, we have heard how uncomfortable it is more than enough, and the body is ready to move on. So I think the body is ready to not hear how uncomfortable Eric is uh, anymore with this topic. What's funny is what you're about to hear now. On the flip side, I received an unusual amount of positive feedback regarding how I went about delivering the message last week. Two sample quotations from our body. Eric, I think the way you are handling this whole thing is perfect. Perfect and imperfect are two very different things. Just wanted to tell you, that what you did yesterday with your message, this obviously was Monday, and opening up at the end, that was perfect. You were going about it the right way. Thank you. Keep doing what you know to do. Okay, do you understand how a body can actually have different lenses on the same thing? That same thing at the end to someone would say, that was a perfect thing to do. To skip over 1 Corinthians 14 and to do that, that was perfect. To skip over 1 Corinthians 14, that was wrong. We needed the scriptural basis. Do you follow me? In other words, both... I think are right. They're sensitivities that we all could be correct in. I think both are the tension. How do you do both in a church? How do you preach the word and yet not preach the word and give space for the body to bring their pastry dish and to share it? This is a tension that yours truly is experiencing. The reason is this is such a difficult subject. The information given us in scripture on this topic is not easily codified into an obvious systemized form. When you start dealing with spiritual gifts, you have a wide array of the New Testament. It is a massive subject, and it is not an easily organized one. For many of us, we like to easily organize. It's called systematic theology. And there is one thing that is very difficult to systematize, and that's spiritual gifts, which bothers many of us, okay? As someone who loves things organized, this topic is extremely difficult. Paul delivers five different lists on the subject. If any of you have ever studied this, you know what I mean. It's like, okay, there he's going. He's defining what spiritual gifts are. And then you read another list. It's like, well, that was different. Why? Yeah, they're very different. 
In fact, so different that at first glance they seem to be completely contradictory. That's how different they are. And yet the distinction isn't the fact that they're different. In other words, the fact that they're different is actually part of God's tutelage to us. You see, he's talking about different aspects of the body. In every body, there's different ways that you could look at it. If I put the glasses on and say, okay, how is this governmentally run? Well, when I'm talking governmental giftings to the body, I'm going to be talking about eldership, bishops, uh, deacons. But that's a different lens. That's a governmental lens. When I talk about functionality of how we're each going to be divided up in imparted spiritual ability, we're going to be talking about things like prophets and apostles and teachers and pastors, which gets us a little uncomfortable maybe. Oh, I used the word uncomfortable again. But that, in that context, it was you getting uncomfortable. I, I wasn't. And then we also just have normal daily giftings interacting with one another. And each of those different tiers expresses something different, depends on which lens you're, you're wearing. Paul seems to be dealing sometimes with governmental positions, other times with ministry positions, other times with simple body life daily function. This is another reason why this is a difficult topic. This very subject has been the cause of church splits divisions over the centuries. The mishandling of this subject has led to great harm in the body of Christ since the days of the early church. This isn't a modern challenge that we have. This is a first century church issue. Many in our body have witnessed great abuses and twistings of scripture and its application regarding this particular topic. Some of you, this is a very easy topic and you are so delighted to see us addressing it. But I want you to just remember and be sensitive to the fact that there are probably more than you realize in here that actually are scared of this topic. And as I'm walking through it, you may be like, finally. However, there's another group in here that it's it's sort of like nails down a chalkboard. It's hard for them. And so, however, every single one of them that has talked to me has said, I want to go through this, but it's hard. Okay, do you follow me? So now you see in my leadership, knowing that, and knowing even the strength and maturity of those that have come to me and expressed that, it's not, we're not talking weak Christians here, we're talking very stout ones. I recognize that we are a blended body. And so to move together in harmony is actually my great desire. It's not to just take one side and emphasize it and have that other side just leave because this is scary stuff. But it's to say, hey, I want all of us to be united. Do we all agree that the word of God is the word of God? Yes. Do we agree that the word of God says this? Yes. And then we get down to what that actually means and how that applies to us. That's where the tension is. And so that's where I want to handle it very wisely. Take, for instance, prophecy. So prophecy, which is what I brought up last week, is a word that is just loaded, okay? In other words, If you just have a different word instead of prophecy, and it just merely was verbal edification, you know that no one has a problem with that in the church today? We could all unite if we just called it verbal edification. However, that wouldn't fully enunciate what prophecy is, and most of you that have studied the topic would know that, because verbal edification, anyone could do that. You don't need to be a Christian to verbally edify. However, you need to be a Christian to prophesy. And yet what prophecy is, is it's verbal edification. But it's verbal edification that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's a huge distinction. And so as a result, you get to this topic and suddenly, 
it's hard. I want to just explain to you why it's hard for a second, okay? It's not an easy topic to biblically understand. Last week I was going through 1 Corinthians 14, but 1 Corinthians 14 is one type of prophecy. There are prophets of the Old Testament. So if you just study prophets of the Old Testament and then see the word prophet in the New Testament, and you just take the definition of the old and stick it on the new, you've made a mistake. And suddenly you have all sorts of wild things happening. There are prophets, and you notice I capitalized the P. There are prophets in the New Testament. For instance, Jesus is in the New Testament. Yeah, he's a capital. Uh, you see, that just because it's New Testament doesn't mean it's New Covenant yet. You see, when we have the New Covenant, we have a, a new set of framework, a new pattern that seems to enter. Uh, there are prophets of the New Testament. Okay, and by the way, I probably could spend a lot more time talking about capital P prophets because... What we see are scripture writers in the New Testament. We have people that are literally taking the word of God. The spirit of God is carrying them along to write something. Well, most of us would probably classify that as a capital P prophet. And yet, you know, those are debatable points, but it, it could be. There are prophets, and you notice how I don't have a capital on that. Yeah? There are prophets of the New Testament. In fact, these prophets are given to us until the full maturity of the body of Christ, until we grow up unto a perfect man. And so it's really hard for me to say that we've arrived at that point, which means that there is something in the New Testament known as prophets. However, they're not the prophets of the Old Testament, nor are they the prophets that wrote the Scripture. And so what are they? Okay, I'm just giving you the complexity of this topic. There are those who have the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. So are the prophets those that have the gift of prophecy? Uh-huh. See, that's exactly why this is a challenging point. It doesn't say that. It just gives two different things. One seems to be a general gift that is given to many, diversely, and then there seems to be someone who is like a prophet in the body. Well, what's the difference between them? And then there is the act of prophesying in the New Testament that all of us are supposed to desire to do. So does that mean all of us are supposed to desire to be a capital P prophet in the Old Testament? No. And so that's why that same word, prophet to you and prophet to a, are actually somewhat challenging to deal with because of the way it is utilized in the New Testament and its context each time is different. And so as a result for us to land this, we have to do a little gymnastics routine. Last week, I was dealing with how we utilize it, which is the very last one. Okay, it's the very last one of how we edify each other verbally in the body of Christ. I wasn't attempting to deal with uh, number one, two, three, and four, but it probably would have been helpful if I had explained that. But that gives you at least a little uh, understanding of the background of why this can be challenging. So Revelation 19.10 sort of helps us. In this, because I would say no matter which one you're looking at out of that list of five, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophetue. In other words, this, this idea of the spirit of God moving in the body to bring forth something verbally through the people of God, which is prophetuyo, the testimony of Jesus is what comes out. You see, the Holy Spirit, when he works in and through this in us and gives us a burden to speak, what's it all about? It's about the testimony of Jesus. Now, I gave you a Greek word in there, 
It's martyria. Now that typically translates as witness, or in this case, testimony, or in some cases, record. It's the record of Jesus Christ. It's the witness of Jesus Christ. It's the testimony of who he is. That's what God is working in and through the body. So I don't aim towards making things mystical. I aim towards making things very simple and basic. But when God is working in his people, which I think we should expect that he desires to do it, he wants to bear witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ in and through each of us. That's what we are submitting to when we say we want to prophesy. It does not have to be that we foretell the future, even though I'm not going to preclude that from being a potential. It does not mean that it always has to be us seeing something in someone else's life. I see that you have something going on in you. However, I would not preclude that. What I would say all of those things would include would be the edification and the growing up of the body to a clearer picture of Jesus Christ. We are more like Christ because of this action. My thoughts and observations, for what they're worth. Never in my life have I seen a church like ours. You know how big of a statement that is? I have been all over the world. See, some of you don't know that I've I spent a good portion of my life traveling, speaking. Almost every weekend I was traveling. I was in a different church. I have never in my life seen a church like this one. Now, that could be a positive or a negative statement. It's not, it's, there was no qualifiers to say as great of a church as ours. Because this church has weaknesses just like any church. However, there is something very unique, very special about this church, and I have never seen another church like it, ever. Never in my life have I seen pastoral leadership direct a church like ours. So if I have never seen a church like ours, it follows that I've also never witnessed a pastor or a pastoral team direct a church like ours. So what I'm getting out on the table is not only have I never seen a church like this, I've never seen a church like this led You know what, if you've never seen something modeled? Like, growing up, I saw a good father. And so as a result, unwittingly, even subconsciously, I adopted my father's fathering and applied it in my home because I saw something modeled. I've seen pastors my entire life. I grew up in the church, but I've never seen pastoral leadership of this sort of thing. So as a result, there is no model for this. I have no idea what it's supposed to look like. Never in my life have I seen pastoral leadership walk a body like ours through a spiritual minefield like this. I've seen pastors avoid it, and I've seen pastors segregate out towards the people that think like them. In other words, here's what we do in this church, and if you don't like it, there's the door. You see the difference? This is a desire to say, hey guys, we're all Christians And if we all truly build our life upon the word of God in text and what it says about the word of God in person, Jesus Christ, we all stake our eternity on what he did on that cross and his shed blood, we should be able to work together. That's my premise point. And we should be able to work together through this spiritual minefield. And as a result, since I have never personally witnessed any pastoral leadership ever walk a church like this through this type of a thing, hmm, I don't have a model. Never in my life have I seen pastoral leadership deal with this topic in a manner that I would desire to emulate. That's another loaded statement. 
I am not saying you haven't witnessed it, okay? The fact that I am saying I haven't is merely a personal reflection. It is not a statement on any other church out there. Because there are, I guarantee, other churches that are handling this topic well. I have never seen it. But I've never seen a pastoral leadership deal with this topic in a manner that I would desire to emulate. You know how you see things, you're like, oh, that's the way it's done. I want to do it that way. I don't have that. I have a whole bunch of things that I've seen like, I don't want to do it that way. Okay, I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to do it that way. I, when I went to uh, Indonesia uh, after a very long trip and uh, a rather sketchy arrival uh, in the airport, I remember feeling like I, w- I had to sign something that said, uh, if you have, what was it, drugs on you, you will be killed. Uh, that's what it said. And it was like, boy, they need to write this in English a little better than that. That's horrible. And what they meant was like illegal drugs. But I, I mean, Leslie had given me some kind of Sudafed type of thing. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, so then, you know, we're not supposed to be bringing in any books. I had like boxes of books. They told me how I'm supposed to bring them. It's like illegal literature. It's a Muslim country. And the first thing they do is they bring my books to the side and open them. That's like the first thing. So not only am I potentially going to be dead for my Sudafed, but then they open up my books and like, whose books are these? And I said, those are, those are mine. Uh, and, I, and they said, oh, did, you, did you write these? I go, yeah, did you want one? <laughs> the guy's like, oh, he couldn't believe it. So he took one of my books and the rest made it through. I was like, whew. So this is how I arrived. And so we're making our way uh, to the, uh, the church. And the way their church starts is with oh, three or four people that get up and just start speaking in tongues. This is like tongues. I already don't understand the language, right? But this is like tongues, and so no one understands. And there's like four people that they go through, and it takes about 15 minutes, and then they start their service. And this is how, okay, so, yeah, they're using spiritual gifts. They're, they're employing them. They're wielding the movement of the Spirit. And yet everything that's going on inside of me is probably what's going on inside of you as I describe it. It's like, whoa, that doesn't fit the scriptural pattern. Exactly. In other words, what I'm dealing with is the fact that I know what the scriptures say, so I could just exclude it all for the safety of the church, or I could open us up to the utilization of it with the risk of getting out of control. And I, because of my conservative nature, have a tendency to be overprotective lest we start to you know, lose control of the body as if the Holy Spirit would be out of control. If it's really the Holy Spirit, he's anything but out of control. But you have to recognize my background has seen massive abuse. I have not seen healthy use. I have not seen healthy expression. And as a result, there's no model that I can just say, okay, I've seen it done. Never in my life have I seen a church involve 100% of their congregation and successfully marshal the strength of the entire body's spiritual gifts. I mean, I could be asking you these questions right back. Some of you may come from healthy backgrounds where you've seen things. I'm just telling you, the guy that's leading you is like a, a father might be that didn't have a father model. Okay, in other words, I desire to raise my children well, but I, if you've never seen something, it's really hard. Never in my life have I ever heard of such a thing. Now, that's referring to the previous one. 100% of their congregation successfully marshalling the strength of the entire body's spiritual gifts. I, I have never in my life even heard of such a thing. 
Almost every church, even the successful ones that you would see out there, less than 5% of the church run the church, do all the work for the church. To the, the incredible thought of everyone in the church functionally participating with what the Spirit of God, not just with their natural giftings, but with their spiritual giftings. I mean, let me just be honest with you. The word incredulous comes to mind. It's like, come on. As if that's really possible? Though I've never seen it in my lifetime, I see it in Scripture. I don't just see it in Scripture. I'm not talking about it being modeled in Scripture. What I see is it commanded in Scripture. I see it clearly elucidated in Scripture so that Eric would see it and go, that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's how the Spirit of God set up the church. Though I've never seen it in my lifetime, I see this as something that God is desiring to effectively lead us into. Though I've never seen it in my lifetime, I'm convinced that it is possible because this is the pattern and the command of Scripture. Since I haven't seen it in my lifetime, I don't have the obvious model for implementing this impossible church system. That's what I'm going to call it. It's an impossible church system. It's impossible church. It couldn't be done through human means. It would have to be supernaturally governed. You can't do that, Eric. I know I can't. But I do know someone who can Jesus Christ must be the head of it, and the Holy Spirit must rule. And what he asks for, he gets. No man should be higher than the Word of God in text and the Holy Spirit, but should bend its knee and allow God to rule in environment. Since I haven't seen it in my lifetime, I'm likely going to need to learn certain things the hard way through imperfect applications, imperfect attempts, and imperfect models. You know what the Bible's funny? It doesn't always tell you how to do something. It doesn't tell me how to give a sermon. Strange, isn't it? It doesn't tell me how to implement this. It just tells me to do it. So God, there's like a missing thing there. It's like a fuzzy zone of, I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's like, ha, well, he actually does tell me how to do it. It's just, it just sounds so vague. I'll do it, Eric, through you. Okay, but how do I coordinate that? Faithful is he who has called you who also will do it? Okay, <laughs> how do I do that? I do it, Eric. Well, I know, but how do I let you do it? What does that look like? What does it look like when all of us let him do it? It sounds like Eric's going to be out of control. Uh-huh. Well, I want to, I sort of want to be in control. God, don't, do I want to be in control? I don't want to be in control. You see, it, the way the body is set up, human leadership depends on human leadership. It depends on certain frameworks to hold things together. Every business is set up that way. The church is not just a business. The church is something that is altogether different, and we can't run it merely out of was it John Maxwell leadership principles it must be governed by heavenly kingdom principles of dependency upon the Holy Spirit but though this process may not be without error the God who is leading us through it is without error if there is any failing in this process it will be on my part and our leadership's part I just want that to be announced up front that if There are failings and errors. 
they're on the human side, not on the God side. God's word is correct, and even though our application of it may not be perfect, God is not to be blamed for it. There's a human dimension in this that is going to be continually removed out of the way. One of my descriptions of Christianity for years when I would describe what it's like to be a Christian in the process of sanctification is God moves in and he's like a light bulb. Comes in and the light of the world has found its dwelling place inside of you, but you are like black construction paper. And someone could say, are you saying there's a light bulb in you? Because I'm not saying it. With every step of obedience, it's like a pinprick through the construction paper. Light comes forth. And every step of obedience is actually... Less of me, more of the light. The light's there. We have a light in our midst, but there's a lot of us. There's a lot of self stuff that the Spirit of God is working on to pinprick. But with every humble movement of soul to recognize he's greater, he can do this. He removes us out of the way so that his light can shine in this world. I can assure you now that we will not do this perfectly. But I can also assure you that if we are humble in our operations, God will perfectly use our imperfect movements to perfectly reveal himself. It's his choice. He chooses to use imperfect to reveal perfect. We are that imperfect, by the way. We are being perfected, but in the meantime, we are imperfect. He is perfect. And he has chosen to use humble, weak things to reveal that perfection. I can assure you that God is not afraid of using weak vessels to show forth his strength. I can give you quite a bit of biblical backing for that. I can assure you that God is not bashful to use fumbling and bumbling characters like me, like you, to reveal his manifold wisdom under the heavenly realms. Fumbling, bumbling, that's one of the terms I used last week to try and describe the fact that as a father... When I train my kids, it's very, very easy for me to default to the fact that I'd expect them to do it perfectly. And yet, my kids consistently have shown me imperfection. And so, but what I realize is that a healthy home isn't just a home of perfect kids. It involves a constant growth. It's a constant shaping. And my job is to show mercy higher than judgment. It's to be constantly ruling with love, not just with dictatorial law. And though I am still growing them up and seeing them refined, and I still have standards, I need to know what's most important. And the same is true in the kingdom of heaven, that God is growing us up, but he governs us with love, not with law. Not with the command to be perfect in the sense that we think but to perfectly respond to the Holy Spirit's correction when we aren't. In other words, we will not be perfect, but we are called to be perfect. So when we don't show love, what does the Holy Spirit do? He perfects us. He says, and we say, yes, Lord. And then he perfects us through that. And so the perfect is coming through, but it's not because we are perfect. He is perfect the whole while. I'm personally okay with doing this imperfectly. I have a question for you guys now. Are you guys okay with doing this imperfectly? I just want you to ponder that. Because there are going to be a lot of moments in this where you're going to want to offer the critique 
of how this should have been done better. And I'm just going to agree with you up front. You're right. It could have been done better. There are so many things in life that if I could do it all again, I would, yes, have a different strategy for that. Yes, I would approach it differently. Unfortunately, I live in present tense, which means I have to make a decision right now. And I want to make a decision in light of what I know and in light of what I sense the Spirit of God is doing. Can I miss it? Yes. I don't want you to look at this as inerrant. This is fallible. His name is Eric Ludi. God's word is inerrant, without flaw. The Holy Spirit is without flaw. Eric's ability to discern that and to read it sometimes can be clouded. I want you to recognize that. My desire is to lead perfectly. It is. But I accept the fact that God's pattern isn't dependent upon my perfection. It's dependent upon his. The gospel hinges on his perfect sacrifice, not on mine. Praise God. I'm personally okay with making some mistakes along the way. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about this right now. In other words, everything that you could critique in here, I want you to know you probably would be correct. Eric could be a better leader. Our pastoral team could do things a lot better than we do. However, if you knew the heart of our pastoral team, you would recognize one thing that is true about every single one of these nine men. We genuinely desire God to get his glory out of this church. We genuinely love the people in this church. So, yes, we won't do it perfectly, but at least God is showing a very real work of grace in us. Are you okay with the pastoral leadership team making some mistakes along the way? I'm personally okay with taking the blame for any mistakes I make and not trying to stick those mistakes in the Holy Spirit. You ever had that? You see, when you're dealing with spiritual movements and things like that, the Holy Spirit is saying something to me right now. You see, I'm very slow to ever say anything like that. I grew up, Leslie's dad uh, used to always say it this way. He's like, 5149. 5149. It's like, what in the world's 5149? Well, I'm 51% confident that God is leading me in this. 49% knowing that I can miss. So I'm humbly saying, I sense God is saying this. You know, I grew up around that. That was a very formative thing. Now, I don't mind it being a little higher percentage than 51. However, the point being, the allowance and the recognition that this is a humble, weak vessel. And that as this humble, weak vessel spends more and more time heeding God, I become sharper in my ability to discern. So that percentage is going to raise to the point where I'm I doubt I'm going to say 99-1, 99-1. However, that's what happens in a body. We become sharper and more sensitive. But I'm not going to blame it on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one that did this. He's the one that punched you in the nose, not me. He just said, punch him in the nose. And I'm going to say, the Holy Spirit didn't say that. You see, that's Eric, Eric's flesh that punched you in the nose. I don't punch people. That's not a normal habit for me. I'm personally okay with taking the blame. I already read that one. Oh, Are you willing to do the same? I can't stand it when people blame God for ridiculous flesh maneuvers under the banner of the Holy Spirit. It really bothers me. I'm personally okay with not being the savior of this body and with being utterly dependent upon the one who is the savior of this body. Are you okay with me not being the savior? I know it's like a ridiculous question. Of course you're going to say yes to that, but I want you to ponder how you view the pastoral leadership. 
The pastoral leadership cannot actually lead the church of Jesus Christ. We lead, but only positionally. It's the Spirit of God that must lead us. Are you okay with me not being the Savior? Are you okay with me being utterly dependent upon Jesus? Three solemn reminders to the leadership of this church, starting with me. Don't seek the best seats in the feasts, but the lowest. Remember we talked about a love feast two weeks ago, and we talked about the fact that that's exactly what the church is. It's a love feast. Everyone is preparing a pastry. We talked about manna, daily gathering. Every one of us comes ready to give. And so we called that a love feast. This scripture, I remember studying it two weeks ago, and it stood out to me. The Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, what did they do? They sought the best seats in the feasts and in the synagogues. The gathering of the believers, they sought the best seats. Now, for us, we don't have best seats. I should call the front row the best seats. No, that, then none of you would ever sit in it. I should, I should call the back area the best seats, and then all of you would feel compelled to come forward. That might be a good strategy. They, the scribes and the Pharisees, love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. Same context, verse 11. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. God is setting a pattern. And if we are going to have leadership in this church that is worth its salt, that is, that is able to showcase Jesus, this, these are solemn reminders for leadership. Not just for the leadership that is currently in place, but we have such a pithy amount of leaders in this church. I mean, and I don't know if I said this to you or said it to some small group. I'll say it again because it's worth repeating. I was with some, some leaders out in uh, Chicago a few weeks back. And we were talking about leadership in churches. And uh, usually an average church will have maybe one to two men that could pass the elder deacon sniff test. You know, that Paul lays out. It's like, this is how the man ought to live. I mean, it, they're really... Uh, struggling. I mean, even finding one in some churches is really difficult. So they have to sort of fudge it. It's like, well, we'll overlook this, overlook this, because obviously we need elders and deacons. Our church does not struggle with that. We have at least, and I'm going to say at least, because I know it's more than that, at least 30 men in this church, in addition to our leadership, that have already passed our initial sniff test. In other words, we have such density to leadership strength. I want us to remember, though you may not be a leader in here yet, you are a leader in life. And every single feast and synagogue you gather in, I know we don't usually call them feasts and synagogues, to seek the lowest place. That's a solemn reminder for every single one of us. Don't ever put judgment higher than mercy in the function of the church. Luke 13, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So if we just finish the story right there, everything's fine. You see, what Jesus did is obvious Jesus. It's just classic Jesus. However, Jesus just violated something. Did he not realize but the, rulers of, the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days in which men ought to work, therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan is bound? Think of it. For 18 years be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath? 
And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. There is a law. You keep the Sabbath. But there's a higher law. Love. You see, we have an opportunity to give life in every situation. When you form a church, you create framework. You create order. And that order, that framework is not the lead. It is love that is always the pulsating purpose of our gathering. And so therefore, as an exhortation to all of us as leaders and all of you that are leaders elsewhere and all of you that will be leaders, to recognize that judgment is subservient to mercy. That mercy, that love, is actually the highest priority of the church, even if at times we have to, what looks like, transgress the rule that we have set up to protect the body. Number three, protect love. Don't crucify Christ afresh in an attempt to protect law. The Pharisees crucified Christ. They knew the scriptures. They knew what they were waiting for, and they crucified the one they were waiting for. I do not want to crucify Christ afresh in our body because we so elevate the wrong things. We elevate text over person. The person reveals the text. How could, if you truly love the text, you would love the person? And so I do not want us to elevate doctrine over love. If you truly had good doctrine, you would love. That's the chief commandment. In other words, when you elevate the wrong thing, you sabotage the very point of why we gather. And so as leaders, as I've been pondering this, in my own home, there are certain children that are very easy to lead, and I have other children that are a little more challenging. The more challenging ones have a tendency to get a lot of law from Daddy Ludi. Don't do this. Hey, I already told you not to do that. Hey, that, I've told you how many times you said that. We do not do that in the Ludi house. The Ludi house has order, has rules. I don't want to cause my children to miss out on the law of love because Daddy is a good rule keeper. It's true that they just violated something. However, I want to wield love as my chief weapon in raising up my children. The same is true in here. Three crucial rules of thumb for the congregation at Ellerslie. That's you guys. There is always a better way to do something. Don't trip over that fact. When you are in your seat, you could evaluate the flow of of the service, all these different things, and you could say they could do this so much better. And I'm just going to agree with you right now. You're right. This could be done better. Do you know that this church is not a reflection of any one person here? If you think that if I were building a church from scratch, it would look like this, you don't have a clue how this church was put together. This isn't a reflection of the way I would do things. It's a partial reflection. It's a mutt. It is a whole consortium of all sorts of different perspectives woven together in some funny church. We're a funny church. We're a mutt. We're not a pure breed. And as a result, there is a way every single one of us is going to be dissatisfied in some realm of this church. The worship should have more time. The worship should have less time. The preaching should be longer. The preaching should be shorter. We should have more family communications. We should have less of that spiritual gift stuff. Every single dimension of this is going to be reasonably arguable. For every single one of us, we have to emphasize love over form. Starting with me, form can easily become something that I think about. It's like, boy, 
And yet, love is the essence of what marks us as the church. Armchair Christianity, have you guys ever heard of armchair quarterbacks? They're the ones that criticize their football team all day long. Oh, you know, fire. What do they call him? Cut, cut that guy. He's going to fumble the ball in the fourth quarter. Can't believe he did it. Meanwhile, you're sitting there with your, your Coke, because you guys would drink Coke. Uh, and, and you're burping away in your armchair, quarterbacking the whole team, when in actuality you're not doing anything. Armchair Christianity leads to apathy and criticism. We all must be doing We all put on our pads, and we all come to the game ready to play in it, not to just watch it be played. It's a reasonable statement back from you to say, this church hasn't been set up allowing us in the game. And I'm not going to argue that. I'm going to say that's one of the burdens in my soul is to create room for substitutions. Bring people in. Hey, we need more players. We need a constant revolution here. We want everyone playing. Sounds like one of those terrible... uh, leagues like you're growing up in, you know, when everyone plays, like you're in those peewee leagues, and it's like all these terrible players are in, you're like, I want to win, we've got all these terrible players. Yeah, that's what it sounds like at first blush to me. I like to win. And so let's get our elite players in there, and let's win this thing. It doesn't seem to be God's method. God seems to be interested in that peewee league concept. I think it's great, and I've fallen in love with it. By the way, though I sometimes give voice to the old Eric sensitivities of competitiveness and doing things with excellence and keeping my home perfect. I do agree with everything I'm saying here. I do. And this is how I desire to lead my own home. This is how I desire to lead this church. Mistakes are necessary. This is very, very important. Mistakes are necessary. Isn't that a funny statement? Mistakes are necessary, even important for proper growth and development. If a child never tries, then they would never make a mistake, which means they would never learn. If they never try, they never grow. And so some people will never try for fear of failure. And when it comes to this exact topic, I understand that. I could preach that all day long. Come on, people. If you never go out and evangelize, then you'd never recognize that the Spirit of God will be present with you. How do I know he'll help me? How do I know he'll be there when I do it? Well, you'll never find out unless you do it. In other words, this is all part of the growth of the body of Christ individually, But do we recognize that this is actually the same thing for us corporately? And that's where the tension has been in my soul. What does that look like? So I I was taking a business class in college, and there was this whole hour, hour and a half. It was a huge, long thing. I remember having the the teachers say, uh, yeah, this cost the school $1,000. $1,000 for one video. And it was on Kaizen uh, some of you know the word. It's a Japanese word, good business term. And it's the secret of the Japanese business industry. They take what America starts and their inventions, and then they kaizen it. They make it better. It's constant improvement. And so I got all inspired by that, and it was kaizen. I need to kaizen this area of my life. I need to kaizen this area of my life. The, the Bible actually has a better word for it. And it's not Eric trying to make things better. It's the Holy Spirit bettering. It's called sanctification. It does mean the same thing if you want to say it that way. It's a constant improving. And it's built into the kingdom of heaven. We wouldn't need to be sanctified if we were already perfect. So, if you understand that simple concept that it's okay not to be fully sanctified, but you're being sanctified. 
the most, one of the most harmful ideas that has ever been uh, put into the, the modern system of thought is that when you come to Christ, you are perfect. It's just not true. He's perfect and he's your clothing, therefore you're welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. So come boldly. You're justified by his work. But inside of that clothing is a work in process. And that's okay. You are being worked on by the Holy Spirit. So, it's the grace-infused sharpening, refining, and polishing of the believer by the Holy Spirit. Isn't it weird to think of the body of Christ as a whole being sanctified too? We understand it as individuals. Do we realize that as a body, we're being sanctified? And what's his number one tool? Each other. These other irritants around us. These other guys that look at something differently than we do, that have funny personalities, that do things differently than we do. We have such a funny mixture here. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that would ever give voice to it and just call the obvious the obvious, but we're a funny batch of people. I think it's great. I think it's amazing that we are. If we were all cookie cut and all thought the exact same, there's no fun in that. There's no drama. Have you ever, the difference between a documentary and an epic adventure the documentary just tells facts, you know, boring. An epic adventure always has conflict as the core. It has to resolve conflict. We have an epic adventure here. It's not a documentary. Can't you hear the background movie score written by Steve Rosen? It's like in the background and it's moving us. We're doing something great and grand in this earth. The involvement of the fumbling bumblers. That's us. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profitable. Each one of you has been given something to bring to the table. And I've said this, what, five straight weeks? So here I'm saying it again. In other words, I want it to be so baked into our body that we all actually believe it instead of just hear it and not along go, yeah, that's good doctrine. I'm actually saying that I believe that each one of you as sincere believers that have given their life to Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you will actually have something to give. And I want you to be expectant of that and I want us to be ready to function, ready to play. Imagine if one of the coaches of a professional football team, professional basketball team, professional baseball team, whatever you feel would be more intriguing to your brain, actually said, in two weeks, I want you on site. I'm going to put you in the game. Whoa, what are you going to start doing? I mean, you might have a little blubber ring around the middle. It's jiggling. What are you going to do? It's like you're going to look down first and go, I'm not ready for that. So what are you going to do? You have two weeks, not very long, but you're going to start getting ready. That's precisely what I would love to impart. If I could inject it into you, it's like some readiness serum. Where it's like, and you would immediately start to turn in rocky background music. You know, he always has that training scene. He's doing his sit-ups. That's what we need. We need to prepare for what God is doing, which means you are going to be called on. You are going to be used. You are going to be put in the game. I don't know what that means. And I don't know that you have to know what it means as much as get that blubber ring worked off. Start exercising. Extracted from the presentation. I gave a presentation to the pastoral team a few months ago of a burden of vision for where we're headed. I'm just going to take a little clip out of it just so you can see what I said back then. 
I wanted this church to be a place where everyone is being discipled, everyone is involved, and everyone is sharing the gospel with others. You notice the word everyone. The word everyone is not accidental. I called these the three everyones. I had three different versions of it. Where everyone is involved, invested in, and investing in others. Where everyone, capital E-V-E-R-Y-O-N-E, is participating, poured into, and pouring into others. So all three of those said the exact same thing. I was just saying these are synonymous with each other, but this is a burden. Everyone. I don't need someone to come to me and say, Eric, you need to get up and start pursuing Jesus in the morning. You need to have a study time. You need to have a prayer time. You don't need to tell me that. My life is built around that stuff. This is what I do, and I've been doing it for decades. I tell other people to do it. I am involved. I am playing in the game. My desire now in this game, if you want to call it that, is to get you involved. It is a lot easier if I just go my merry way and live my Christianity. It's a lot harder to do this church thing. But I am so burdened with the reality that God has chosen this thing, known as the church, to be his chief revelatory instrument in this earth. If I function individually, I can have impact, but it pales next to what God desires to do in and through us together. Because this is supernatural. Daily church, daily training. So one of, one of the things I brought up a few weeks ago, I think it was, I was talking about the cloud of glory, that when the cloud picks up, we follow it. One of the things that that cloud has done for us is he's moved, but not locationally. It's not like, oh, we're, we're leaving this campus and going somewhere else. It's that he's moved in a very specific way, and that is to utilize this environment and this church to begin to create a springboard, a spiritual resuscitator, a, it's like a defibrillator. You ever heard of a defibrillator? It's like one of those, those paddles on someone's chest, and then they start be- their heart starts beating again. We got a lot of deadness in the church today, and we have some paddles here. Now, I'm used to using paddles. I'm just not sure if you are. I'm used to speaking into people's lives and charging their soul. I'm just not sure if you are. I want every single one of us to learn how to defibrillate, if that's actually a verb. I want us to do that. And so every day we're going to, and I don't know when this is going to start. I'm going to say January because it's far enough out that maybe we can orient and, and get this thing set up. But every day I'd like to be preaching here, every morning. Every morning I'd like to be praying here in the, in the chapel. Every morning I'd like to be worshiping. You don't have to come every day. I'm just saying you could. In other words, we are constantly doing something where this fire is just constant. It's constantly burning. We're constantly uh, stoking it. And people from all over the world could come to this environment and say, well, I know a fire is burning there. As opposed to right now, right now we're ghost town at Ellerslie. I don't know if you've hung around the campus during the week, but it's like there once was life here. You bounce on your toes. (laughs) Because our new model has sort of left us with a ghost town in the in-between seasons. If you've been here when there is a thriving community, oh, it's heaven on earth. That, that, always. See, that just gets me excited, but how you play into it is part of what I'd like to begin to explore. Because the church is thirsty, is hungry for something, and I believe you have something to give to it. I would like us to begin to function as a body to not just love each other, but to then turn outward 
to give to a lost and dying world. The solemn importance of Christian speech, how we handle our tongues in this process is going to be very important. Now, I want to emphasize a word because when I just said it that way, you didn't catch it. How we handle our tongues, see, if you think in spiritual gifts, you get all weird now when I say it that way. How we handle our tongues is very, very important. I'm going to just call it Christian speech. But everything we're talking about, we talk about prophecy and tongues, what is it? It's the employment of a tongue. This tongue inside of our mouth. And when we are unbelievers, we have no governance over the tongue. It says in the book of James, it's set on fire by the very fires of hell. No man can tame the tongue. Well, no man can tame the tongue, but God can. And one of the first signals of a new life is that a tongue is now tamed. That's what Pentecost was. Pentecost was a grabbing of tongues, saying, this belongs to me now. It's the sign of occupied territory. God has moved in. God holds the tongue now. Now, I'm not saying you have to speak in an unknown language. I'm saying you speak God's words now. You speak them God's way because you're a Christian. We're navigating through some challenging stuff, but how we handle our tongues together is very, very critical. The lips of the righteous feed many. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Listen to this. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. If you're not saying something that's edifying, don't say it. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. The beginnings of spiritual gifts, the captured tongue. This is where it all started. It started at Pentecost. A very difficult moment for some people in this room because it's not that you disagree with the act of the Holy Spirit coming down, but what came out of it was chaos. Or I'd like you to have a new lens on it. This is when God gave the church precisely what it needed to function as it was commanded. We need what God gave I know people have hijacked it and have distorted it. But it's high time we as the church of Jesus Christ accept what God intended for the church and begin to function in it according to the word of God in text and in accordance with what matches perfectly the word of God in person. It's supposed to be the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the captured tongue is where it starts. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So where do we go from here? So here's what I'm going to say. Since I'm leaving for, well, this next week, and then I'll be gone for the two weeks preceding the ninth, so the 16th and the 23rd. I'm not going to be here. We're probably going to be preaching on some different things that are still burdens here in the church. But this subject, I'm not going to say it won't be dealt with, because it may. I'm just saying that how we're going to navigate through this might wait until either the end of December or the beginning of a new year. But I would like to say that more on this subject topically, but more of this subject functionally. I am not just interested in talking about it. I'm very interested in employing what we're talking about. That's a deep burden for me. I would like us all to be praying for January's push forward. Whatever this means, I'd like us to be praying together as a body. 
all throughout, uh, I don't know what it's been, a month or so that our leadership team has been meeting on Tuesdays and Wednesday mornings at 6.30 here in the chapel to begin to pray. And uh, what we're wanting to do is expand that to begin to invite everyone. Then we're wanting to turn it into basically every day of the week. In other words, we're taking our first steps forward of, of saying this starts with prayer. I remember one guy in missionary school said, every ministry starts with prayer, continues with prayer, and then continues uh, with prayer however long God desires it. In other words, you don't want to say finishes with prayer, but that's basically the concept. Pray for a January push forward. Meanwhile, keep gathering your daily manna. Get fit. Get in shape. Start exercising what you know to do and keep preparing your daily pastries. Uh, I did get a pastry. I was in Starbucks and, uh, this last week, and I had to step out and take a phone call, and I, I do a lot of walking, so I was out walking, and I came back in, and there was something on my uh, computer. I was like, what in the world? What's that? And I was sort of like, is someone sitting in my seat with their meal? I mean, who? And it, I think it even said Eric on the Starbucks thing. You know how they, they have the name on it? I was like, what? It, and I peeked inside, and it was a pastry. I look around. I don't know anyone there. But I did know two people that were there having a meeting before, so I did pin it down. But uh, I like that, by the way. That was a very nice thing. <laughs> My dream. Now, I've given this many times over the years, but I'm just going to rehearse it again. This is my dream for this church. It's not a real dream. It's a desire. A church that is always uncomfortable. You guys start getting comfortable? We're blowing it here. A church that is always wanting more of Jesus Christ. A church that rejoices in all things. A church that forgets how to fear and only knows how to trust. A church packed full of new believers. Why? Because if it's packed full of new believers, that means we're doing what the church is supposed to be doing. A church where 30% of the congregation would be termed full-time missionaries. In other words, we just have a whole bunch of full-time missionaries. That's what you do. A church in which 100% of the believers inside it are involved in active discipleship. A church that prays together often and always fervently and with persistence. A church that gives their time, their talents, their resources, and their lives. A church in which everyone is an evangelist and every believer leads at least 12 people to Christ annually. It's one a month. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, that just thrills me even reading that. A church that becomes known as the happiest church in the world. I don't, I don't like those guys, but they sure are happy. Why not? Why wouldn't we be the happiest people on earth? I don't care what's happening in the world around us. I don't care what political regime is uh, currently sitting on the throne. It makes no difference to us as Christians because Jesus sits on the throne above all. And he will come for us. Everything that even the enemy means for evil will be turned to good. No weapon fashioned against us will prosper. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Every single thing deserves a smile, a rejoicing, a song. Let's start practicing this. The testimony, the martyria of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So I don't want you to be weirded out on the issue of prophecy. I want you to recognize that the Spirit of God wants to enter into the domain of man and bring forth the testimony of Jesus Christ, the witness. Martyria is where the word martyr comes from. Spirit of prophecy, yep, it leads to martyrdom. It leads to the ultimate witness. In other words, where your life is all about Jesus. So, let's finish with some prophesying. You guys ready for this? Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, lived a sinless life, and in his mouth was no guile. He was the scent of the Father. He was God himself, a heavenly emissary of divine love and mercy. 
At the age of 33, Jesus Christ gave himself into the hands of sinners in order to fulfill all righteousness and redeemed those in bondage to sin and captive to the eternal consequences of sin. Jesus suffered in Gethsemane and under the cruel tortures of evil men. He was scourged and bore the infamy of a criminal, though he was innocent, pure, and spotless. And as a Passover lamb, he died in the stead of sinful humanity, a propitiation and atonement for our sins. He redeemed a fallen humanity by the shedding of his precious blood, reconciling us unto God. He justified those who would believe in faith and clothed them in his righteousness. He bore the just punishment of our sins and pacified the wrath of God towards those who would believe. In dying, he proved himself the Messiah and also created a new and living way for sinful humanity to be restored into right relationship with the Father. This same Jesus that died was buried. And on the third day, in the early morning hours of the first day of the week, he was raised again to life by the Holy Spirit. He was witnessed among men, and on the 40th day after his resurrection, he ascended before the witness of his disciples to go to be with the Father, to take his seat at the right hand of authority where all things were placed underneath his feet. Ten days later, the full fruition of his great cross work was realized on this earth when the Holy Spirit was sent forth to dwell in those who believe, empowering them to live the pure, holy, and righteous life of Jesus and enabling them to overcome sin and the devil exerting the very authority of Jesus Christ in their actions, words, and lives. Nothing quite like a little prophesying. It's the testimony, the martyria of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. This is what he's done. This is what he's done for you. This is how we as the church respond. You see, that can come forth in various forms and fashions. But let's not prohibit it. Let's not diminish it. Let's not exclude under the banner of protecting and keeping order. Let's enable that which the Spirit of God desires to do. Father, only you can lead us forward in this. And so we humbly submit to your leadership, your governance, your guidance. Father, there is a deep longing in many of us here, if not all of us here, that we would grow up unto a full maturity and that what you desire and design for your church would be realized here, even if it is outside the bounds of what we would normally in a human sense feel comfortable with. Lord, we just simply desire you to receive the glory that is due your name. Take us by the hand and lead us, each one of us, not just the governmental leadership of this church, but all of us, every single one of us, that we'd be of one accord And Lord, we ask that you would shake this building as you did buildings of old and that you would move and fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit with power, that we would speak boldly in this generation, in this world. We love you and submit to you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.